So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. On a cold January morning, Commons producer Noor Azria and myself went to go see the future. Wow, so this is, uh, this is pretty glamorous. I mean, it's a bit more of a dystopian future than I was expecting. It's like a dead zone in here. No one is here at all besides us. You know, right now we're standing in the middle of a parking lot just past uh, the Gardener, right next to the waterfront in Toronto on Queen's Quay. And I think what's so interesting about this area is it feels like it's empty. And there are so few parts of downtown Toronto that kind of have this feeling compared to the, the skyscrapers that are right to our side over there. There's not much here, although there is a Porsche dealership, interestingly enough. You know, when I was first moving to Toronto, I was looking at a bunch of places and I did see apartments for rent in this area. But the first reaction that I got from the people I knew around me was like, I don't think you want to be living there. There's nothing there. Well, there is a budget car and truck rental right over here. (laughs) It's crazy to think that this, like, vast place of emptiness was supposed to house like robotic vehicles that will pick up my garbage. You heard that right. And it wasn't just robot garbage collectors. There would be self-driving taxis, awnings that would automatically adjust to the weather, heated sidewalks. I would love heated sidewalks. Right about now, it would be a great alternative than walking on the ice, that's for sure. For a few years, this 16-acre spit of land, known as Keyside, was one of the most contested places in the country. One of the world's biggest tech companies had partnered up with an esoteric government agency to turn this place into the most advanced smart city anywhere. But that dream, it's dead. So today, this is no longer going to be the kind of techno-utopia that some people in Silicon Valley were hoping to turn it into. The project was called Sidewalk Toronto, and its rise and fall can tell us a lot about what can happen when digital monopolies decide that they want to extend their reach into the physical world and what could be in store for all of us when they finally do. More after the break. 
This will be a global draw for new ideas for economic growth and development. Our technology applied with the energy, the passion of the citizens of Toronto will make this thing incredibly successful. That voice you're hearing is Eric Schmidt, the former executive chairman of Alphabet, the parent company of Google. Google is functionally a data and a data processing company. And if you look at it through that lens, what happened here in Toronto with Sidewalk Labs actually makes a lot of sense. My name is Joshua Kane. I'm a business reporter at the Globe and Mail and a longtime technology reporter where I had the privilege of covering the Sidewalk Labs saga uh, unfold a couple of blocks from my newsroom for a few years. Josh is also the author of Sideways, the city Google couldn't buy, which covers this whole story. Now, to understand how that vision of robot garbage collectors and heated sidewalks that I was talking about earlier came to be, you first have to really grasp what Google is all about. Google created the economy of the internet, and they created this sort of ever-growing series of products that keep you in their ecosystem through email, through maps, through mobile phones, through search, through just about everything. They are sort of learning about how people behave, and then that allowed them to you know, sell advertising against that behavior. Google slash Alphabet became one of the world's most valuable companies worth more than a trillion dollars. When you're a person who's already built something worth a trillion dollars, very few people in history have been satisfied with just that. And they start thinking about where does the next trillion come from? And what's left after the digital world when you've conquered that? The physical world. Larry Page, one of Google's co-founders, had some ideas about where that next trillion might be hiding. He thinks Google's not being innovative. It's the beginning of the 2010s. He wants to do more and more and more. And he wanted to keep inventing and keep having Google sort of at the forefront of the world's innovation. And one of the things that he wanted to change were cities. He didn't think they were innovative enough or that they were effective enough for the people who were inside of them. Page imagined a world where technology would solve all the many problems that plague cities, from traffic jams to unaffordable housing and everything in between. Soon, Page created a unit of Google dedicated to so-called smart cities, which was eventually spun off into a sister company called Sidewalk Labs. Sidewalk Labs doesn't really have a revenue stream, so it is functionally funded majority by Google's revenues. And it becomes this company in sort of the 2015-2016 era where they start writing up documents about how they could do many different crazy and wild things to change cities. And early in its existence, the team at Sidewalk Labs put together their vision for smart cities into a single enormous document. It had an unofficial name, the Yellow Book. It was sort of sheathed in this big lemon cover. I've actually got it with me. How bright yellow that is. So it was this giant pitch book that dozens of staff and consultants basically spent a little over a year putting together where they was like, how can we think about the future of cities? Their ideas, depending on how you looked at them, were either groundbreaking and innovative or straight up dystopian. There was, you know, everything from 
having a tiered access to the neighborhood based on how much data you were willing to share about yourself to one of the smaller items that they proposed that I was just fascinated with was the idea of a smart mirror that would have sensors and cameras inside of it that would notice changes in the blood flow to your face before you did and notify you so you can get in touch with your doctor. You could imagine that, you know, a health insurance company might want that. And what happens in a world where your health insurance company maybe found out about that before you even were aware of that and your premiums went up? Anything could have been possible. And all of this would be facilitated by thousands of sensors that tracked almost everything that happened. Sensors collect data, and data is sort of this form of currency where power can be concentrated if you either collect the most or have the ability to process it the most efficiently to find patterns. People have been living in cities for thousands of years, but we don't necessarily have massive levels of centralized data collection. There's a lot of analog data collection, like literally when people are looking to monitor an intersection, there's sometimes just people clicking like a nightclub doorman. And so the idea of automating and digitizing a lot of this data collection, whoever does that has the opportunity to sort of be the expert in how cities work. And the world has been increasingly urbanizing for the past few hundred years. So you're going to have a sort of naturally constantly growing data set. But some of the most radical ideas in the Yellow Book had nothing to do with technology at all. And there's a lot of talk in this book about sort of transferring a lot of powers that you would kind of expect a government to do up to and including taxation authority on some matters that they wanted to have control of. Now, the only problem was they needed to find a place to actually build this dream city. They needed a partner. Larry Page had hoped for Silicon Valley. Others at Sidewalk Labs were looking at Rust Belt cities like Detroit. But they didn't end up at the center of the tech universe or helping a post-industrial city get back on its feet. Instead, Sidewalk Labs was about to set its sights even further north. Toronto is a city with a vast waterfront, but it absolutely does not know how to use it. Now, for a long time, much of that land was devoted to heavy industry, and most of those businesses are now long gone. What remains is a huge chunk of underdeveloped land, much of it tainted with dangerous pollutants, but also full of potential. The Portlands, as this almost 900-acre stretch is called, is located right next to one of the most expensive downtowns in North America. For decades, developers and politicians have dreamed about what this land could become, And back in 2001, the three levels of government created an organization called Waterfront Toronto to figure out what to do with it all. So Waterfront Toronto is this, I don't think I've ever used this word prior to jumping on the story, a tripartite government organization. There aren't that many that do this specific kind of work where they're equally funded by the Toronto, the Ontario, and the Canadian governments. And their main job when they were created was it's sort of amid the death of an Olympic bid for Toronto and specifically on its waterfront, they're like, well, why don't we try to revitalize the waterfront anyway for the economic development opportunity and, you know, some inclusion stuff too to make it more accessible to the public. They built their name building on infrastructure and public parks so that developers would be more enticed to build there and then the increased land value when they you know, sold to developers, could then be used to repurpose to develop more infrastructure and more parks so that there was just more accessibility to the waterfront and just you know more amenities there. 
one of the parcels of land that they had at their disposal was a smallish strip called Keyside. Keyside is this weird patch of like low-rise buildings and mud. And the first time I ever actually visited Keyside, I was went there to board a party boat because a friend of mine had booked an event with like a band and a DJ on there. And then like six months later, suddenly I'm like, oh, this is like ground zero from my reporting. This is really funny. But like, you know, it's this sort of muddy parking lot next to a party boat and a, a soybean silo. And then a few sort of just like low-rise industrial-ish buildings. There was, it's not wasteland. It was only 12 acres. But it was sort of key to opening up the whole Portlands, which has a variety of different owners that aren't waterfront Toronto, that could have been really the key to opening up a lot of opportunity to build a much bigger neighborhood. Waterfront Toronto began to look for potential bidders for this piece of land. It kind of really was coincidental that a former employee of the CEO of Sidewalk Labs happened to be the chief design officer for Waterfront Toronto. And so... It was this obscure government agency that reached out to Sidewalk Labs. Would they be interested in throwing their hat in the ring? It soon became clear that these two sides were speaking the same language. So before they opened the project up to bidders, Waterfront Toronto was talking with a bunch of different people, a bunch of Canadian startups, a bunch of other technology companies, and Sidewalk Labs. Sidewalk Labs was thinking, to put it bluntly and perhaps far too condensed, they were thinking in the same buzzwords as Waterfront Toronto was. They were thinking about merging technology and urbanism. I have seen the bid of a competing consortium of Canadian companies and Sidewalk, in objective terms, was the strongest bidder based on what they were asked to do in the request for proposals. Sidewalk Labs won the bid, and that is when all the trouble began. In many ways, both Toronto in particular and Canada more generally were the perfect suitors for a tech company like Google. First, Toronto. So I'm not from Toronto originally. I grew up in the Maritimes. And when I moved to Toronto, I thought it was this place that was really confident in its place in the world. And in fact, one of the things that struck me when I moved here 13 years ago was that it is a deeply insecure place that is constantly comparing itself to other places. And one of the consequences of that kind of thinking is that it likes the idea of being adjacent to greatness. And particularly, you know, prior to the tech clash in 2018, Toronto was very susceptible to the idea of something great happening here if it was being pitched. And so when an offshoot of Google comes to town and says, you know, we'd like to build the community of the future right here on your waterfront. What that did was bring a lot of excitement. And in Ottawa, it was a similar story. When the Trudeau Liberals were first elected halfway through the 2010s, this was in the moment where progress in technology was often conflated with progress in society. And there was, you know, nothing cooler if you already happen to be someone from the middle class or higher and looking at a cool job than getting a job at Google or Facebook or Amazon. It was sort of seen as you were going to be building the future. In his first years as PM, Trudeau met with tech luminaries like Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg, Apple's Tim Cook, and Amazon's Jeff Bezos. Josh says that big tech was simply part of the Trudeau liberal brand. And so when Sidewalk Labs was announced as the winning bidder to develop Keyside, Trudeau's excitement was palpable. Thank you very much. 
It's great to be back in Toronto. I want to thank Waterfront Toronto for putting together this event and welcoming Side Sidewalk Labs to Toronto. Eric and I have been talking about uh, collaborating on this for, for uh, a few years now, and seeing it all come together today is extraordinarily exciting. But within weeks, things started to go awry. For one, much of the local tech community started wondering why such an important initiative in the heart of Toronto was going to be run by what amounted to an arm of Google. Weren't there businesses here that knew what they were doing? Even before the announcement, we've been following Sidewalk. Anytime Google you know, makes noise like they want to get into a market you're in, it's both an opportunity and a threat, right? So we've been following them for a while. I'm Curtis McBride, one of the co-founders and the CEO of a company called MyVision Technologies based in Kitchener. MyVision focuses on helping cities to understand and optimize the flow of traffic through intersection networks. In other words, Curtis works to help make cities smarter though he's not a fan of the term smart cities. The whole smart city thing, I've never really liked it because if we're smart now, like what, what were we before? And when he'd heard that Google was coming to town, he was a bit confused. Okay, Google's going to develop 12 acres of real estate in Toronto. This makes no sense to me. This doesn't move the needle for them in any financial sense, and it doesn't really move the needle for them in a data acquisition or intellectual property sense, which is like their core business. So why are they doing this? And that became a question that a lot of people were asking. 12 acres isn't exactly a lot of land, but the Portlands, which Keyside was only a small part of, are much, much bigger. There's hundreds of acres of land there. Waterfront Toronto didn't own that, but they had relationships with the landowners, a lot of which were other governments. And Sidewalk Labs, in its bid, made it very clear they wanted to go well beyond 12 acres. At every point, Waterfront Toronto would often remind the public this is a 12-acre project, and Sidewalk Labs kept trying to make it clear that they wanted more than that in order to be able to make the technology scale. It's hard to figure out how the future of cities is going to look like on just 12 acres. If you go down there, it's this Tetris block-shaped piece of land that's got like one big intersection in it and maybe another smaller one in it. You can't test a self-driving car there 20 years from now. You need a few more acres than that. You don't have enough intersections to really measure traffic or, you know, places where you can set up your underground garbage moving robots. And so they had always wanted more land. They had made that very clear from the beginning. And many Torontonians were concerned that governments might just give that land away to sidewalk labs. After all, Canadian politicians get starry-eyed whenever they think of a big tech company opening up operations anywhere in the country, even though the benefits aren't so obvious. Politicians would be very excited when a large company announces a bunch of jobs there, even though it might mean actually you're helping the tax base of a company in California. 600 jobs here, that's helpful, but it might not necessarily actually boost the Canadian economy in a meaningful way. So I think we have this economic doctrine that says that bringing a Toyota plant into, you know, Cambridge is good for Cambridge because it's going to create a whole bunch of jobs in the, in the externalities that will wrap the supply chain around it. And I think we apply that exact same doctrine to the information economy, right? We use foreign direct investment to bring Google into Canada, thinking that it will have the same ex externality effect. In fact, it has the exact opposite effect. It drives up the cost of talent and it drives out the domestic innovator. And besides the land, there was another major asset that people were concerned about. All that data. 
data is power in a lot of ways. If you have access to enough data, you're going to be able to recognize patterns in that data. So if we're looking at cities, a great example would be perhaps the distance that people walk from building to building or how many people are at an intersection at a given time. And with enough of that data, recognize that, oh, we're designing this whole part of the city wrong. Well, why don't we design it better? And so by assessing those patterns, you can then develop new ideas, perhaps they're technologies or perhaps they're just designs that you can then turn into intellectual property and then license and then monetize. And this is how companies like Google helped build their war chest that made them such you know juggernauts of the modern economy. And whoever has access to new sets of data is going to be able to build up power in other elements of the economy. And for a company like Google, this data would have been even more valuable than to anyone else. In the data economy, whoever has the most data can correlate the data they have to incremental pieces of data and extract a ton of value, right? So if I have 10 pieces of data and you have one piece of data, and we each get access to one new piece of data, that one new piece of data is worth way more to me than it is to you because I have 10 pieces of data that you don't have, okay? To your one piece of data that I don't have. So the thing that was missed at a policy level was that Google has an incredible amount of data already, right? Like we long ago, we all gave up all of our personal information in exchange for free cat videos like decades ago. So now let's say I'm the city of Toronto. Well, I have certain data that Google doesn't have, right? I know the state of a traffic light, for example. I know land use information and I know where my parks are. And this data may not be structured or open in a way that Google can consume it. And as Toronto, I look at that data, I'm like, well, this isn't very valuable. The state of a traffic light, no one wants to buy that information for me. But if I'm Google and I own Google Maps, the idea of integrating the state of a traffic light into Google Maps is extremely valuable because I have all of this other information that I can combine that with that would create incremental features, drive more eyeballs to my maps, let me sell more advertising. So Toronto looked at the economics of that project and saw 12 acres of valuable real estate and got so fixated on that as being the prize in this. Well, the truth is the prize was in the data. And the value of data has grown exponentially in the last few years. Seven, eight years ago, there's this thing called deep learning that comes on the scene. Everyone refers to now as just AI. So before deep learning came on the scene, data was sort of like the output of a technology process. So I take some information, I run some heuristics, I generate some data on the other side of it. So data was almost like a waste product of many technology-driven business processes. But the rise of deep learning or artificial intelligence changed all of that. Now data is the most important ingredient. Deep learning doesn't rely on smart people building heuristics. It basically says the algorithms themselves, the AI, is somewhat commoditized. What's important is the data that trains the AI. So all of a sudden, this data that, you know, maybe before was a waste product sitting in a database, no one cared about it. All of a sudden, that data becomes extremely valuable. Because the way you write sophisticated software now is with data, not with people writing software. Data was valuable before that, but data became extremely valuable on the other side of the emergence of deep learning. It's rare for such a high-profile experiment like this to take place in a Canadian city. It attracted worldwide attention. 
and also a lot of critics right here in Toronto. There was some pushback right from the very beginning. The group ACORN, as an example, was protesting the very first public meeting, and a lot of people were raising questions, again, from the very first public meeting in, in late October or early November 2017 about what could go wrong, how wealth would be distributed, who is going to benefit the most from a project being designed by an affiliate of one of the world's largest and arguably most powerful companies. Here's Bianca Wiley, a writer and an open government and public technology advocate, speaking on the agenda shortly after the Sidewalk Toronto agreement was announced. Technology, big tech particularly, they are way ahead of the government in terms of understanding technology, working on technology, coming up with solutions, and most importantly, figuring out ways to make money using technology, right? Mm -hmm. So to have somebody like the government, all three levels of government, sort of being in charge of this thing, um, I would not say that they're as up to speed as Google is with its intentions. And so there's a bit of a challenge there in terms of how this is set up from the hop. And there were major concerns around transparency. No one in the public really even knew what this government agency and big tech company had agreed to. The arguments that it was not transparent began when Sidewalk Labs and Waterfront Toronto wouldn't release their contract. And part of the reasoning behind that was they didn't necessarily want to release an iterative contract. They were actually working on a longer contract that they wanted to release to the public down the road. But because of what people had signed, they were not allowed to necessarily discuss it. But people wanted to know what was in it. And at least one of the people who knew what was in it thought the same thing. One of the members of the Waterfront Toronto Board of Directors happened to be Deputy Mayor Denzel Minnan-Wong. And at this City Hall Executive Committee meeting, he you know, had the microphone and started making these cryptic remarks. Sorry, Councillor Minnan-Wong, aren't you on Waterfront Toronto? Yes, I am. So have you not been able to get your questions answered there? I, I know enough about the agreement that I think you would like to know more about the agreement. I later learned that his concerns stemmed around the language around the access to land because people weren't really sure about the access to land because the request for proposals and what Waterfront Toronto was saying in public was about 12 acres. But what Sidewalk Labs wanted and would, you know, routinely mention was that for optimal scalability, they wanted, you know, access to much more land throughout the portlands to really make their dream work. And that, that was the sort of thing that was hidden inside this document. Waterfront Toronto and Sidewalk Labs tried to assuage the public in numerous ways. Waterfront Toronto, which for a long time had dealt mostly with land use issues, was clearly out of its depth when it came to all of this talk about data and privacy. So they created a digital advisory council filled with thinkers and luminaries from around the region. And one of the people who was asked to sit on it was Curtis McBride. And it didn't take long for Curtis to become very skeptical of the plans that Sidewalk Labs had for all that data. To be honest, it was very opaque, and it was the one area of the whole thing that stayed opaque throughout. At the beginning, there was talk about all these applications, right? Like robots to collect garbage and curbside utilization applications. And, and over the project, a lot of those application layer things were sort of either removed or handed to partners to build. But the two areas that Sidewalk kept throughout that entire time was they called it the koala mount. So it's very cute, you know, unassuming because it was a koala and the software defined network. 
And so what the koala mount was, was basically the place where data would come in and out of the network. And the software-defined network was effectively, it's the transport layer of information of the city. So basically that what they were saying was, other than how data comes in and out of the network and who controls how it moves around inside the network, we're happy to get out of everything else. And as a technologist, you're like, well, obviously, because those are the two valuable points. Like you can rate limit and charge for data coming in and out with the koala, and you can control the structure, flow, and economics of the data as it moves around. Who cares whether you're the one delivering the robot, delivering the garbage? All the data that powers that robot is going to flow through you. There was never really transparency around, you know, the sort of the business model or the intent behind how that data would be structured. Despite the concerns of many privacy and data experts, there was still a halo around the Sidewalk Toronto project in 2017. People still felt fairly positive about the role of big technology companies in society. That was all about to change. Facebook says it believes the data from 87 million users might have been improperly shared with Cambridge Analytica. That's the political consultancy agency and data mining firm. But in early 2018 was when we saw the Cambridge Analytica data misuse scandal. And with Cambridge Analytica, when people realized that the information that they were sharing about themselves online could be used for purposes other than they were sharing it for, people started to realize, wait a second, what is going on with these tech companies? What is their motivation? And people started to realize that the economy that was built on the internet did not necessarily proportionally benefit them when it came to the dispersion of wealth and the dispersion of privacy rights. And those two things became a lot more common in discussions and spilled over inevitably into what is happening here in Toronto and just kind of imbued the entire saga with a, a much greater degree of public skepticism. That was the mood when Waterfront Toronto and Sidewalk Labs had basically the summer from hell. First, Waterfront Toronto lost the CEO that had been championing this project. He was asked to resign by the board of directors. But he was just the first to go. The only member of the Waterfront Toronto board of directors, Julie DiLorenzo, who dissented in the original vote, wound up resigning. One of the most vocal critics on the digital advisory panel that Waterfront had put up wound up quitting. Many of the people on that panel resigned, including Curtis McBride. This is all just the summer of 2018. This all happened within a few weeks of each other. Then there were much more threats from this digital panel of experts. Uh, Saudi Muzaffar, who was one of the sort of leading members of the panel, wound up leaving, arguing that they weren't doing substantive enough work and not really taking the issues she wanted to take into consideration, into consideration. Sidewalk Labs had hired Anne Kavukian, Ontario's former privacy commissioner, to be the company's main advisor on privacy issues. She also resigned. And then by the end of 2018, a new provincial government had also come in and the Doug Ford government wanted to kind of put its own imprint on the project. And following a pretty scathing report from the provincial auditor general, the Ford government uh, wound up axing its third of the board of Waterfront Toronto. This is an enormous number of firings and resignations. And over the course of all this, people are just wondering, what is going on? And over the course of 2018 is when a lot of the public sentiment shifted Waterfront Toronto had already been ill-equipped to tackle this never-been-done-before project. And now, it had been totally gutted. 
This was an extremely weird project because Waterfront Toronto was accountable to three levels of government, but that had no majority shareholder. And so it was very easy for any government at any given time to kind of duck and not really deal with the controversy. And all of this was made even more difficult because Canada's privacy laws are practically prehistoric. You saw this in particular, the federal government, when people were basically begging for them to introduce a modern privacy policy that would adapt to, you know, the world as it would be in the future, let alone the world now, because as this is being recorded, the laws regarding private sector privacy on the internet were done around the year 2000. So it's not even equipped to deal with the MySpace era of the internet. But even if we had modern privacy laws, in retrospect, it really feels like Sidewalk Toronto was doomed from the start. A significant number of the controversies from this project basically came from the fact that Sidewalk Labs, I would say the sort of maverick-styled company that wanted to change the world, wound up partnering with this sort of emblem of slow Canadian bureaucracy that had no real powers to do the kinds of things that Sidewalk Labs really wanted it to do. Sidewalk Labs had the impression it was working with a one-stop shop, but Waterfront Toronto was in fact beholden to three levels of government rather than a way to kind of create shortcuts. And as a result, it was difficult to get progress on a lot of matters. By 2019, the project was limping along. When Sidewalk Labs released its big 1,500-page draft master plan in June 2019, a lot of people came out swinging, saying they were angry about it. You know, you had politicians who had previously stayed neutral on the matter coming out and saying, I can't stand for this. You know, you're going to get what was in your contract. It became clear that there were still a number of major disagreements between Waterfront Toronto and Sidewalk Labs. Would Sidewalk Labs get access to any more land? Would the three levels of government get a share of the patents that came out of the project? Josh remembers interviewing Stephen Diamond, who had been appointed chair of the Waterfront Toronto board not long after that summer from hell. And he said, you know, there were seven or eight major points, including land and data, where, you know, if you don't come to the same terms as us, we're, you know, we're going to walk away. And I, this is pretty astonishing to me because I'd interviewed this guy a few times before, and he's a very measured person, and he was very clearly frustrated. And so for the sort of middle few months of 2019, Waterfront Toronto and Sidewalk Labs were back at the negotiating table talking about stuff they have been talking about for years just to get on the same terms. The two sides set a somewhat ominous deadline for themselves, Halloween. If they didn't come to an agreement by then, the partnership would be over. And miraculously, they actually did. Sidewalk Labs acceded to most of Waterfront Toronto's demands. The smart city, albeit a pared-down version of it, looked like it was about to become a reality. But two major developments would eventually spell the end of this whole saga. First, in December 2019, Larry Page, the Google co-founder who championed Alphabet's push into the real world, announced that he was stepping down as CEO of the company. Sidewalk Labs had been his brainchild, one of a variety of moonshot projects that he championed. The new leadership was far less interested in these sorts of speculative ventures. They wanted their companies to make money. And of course, there was that other thing. And then the pandemic hit. And for the first time in many years, the Toronto real estate market was not certain to keep going up and up and up. There were predictions of 
a potential crash at one point over the course of 2020. And when they ran the numbers against that real estate market, it didn't work anymore. And there was this meeting inside Sidewalk Labs over a video call where all the major leaders all went one by one and were asked, do you want to proceed? And they all said no. And it wasn't the dream that they had wanted anymore. They had gone through a lot of battles and they had decided to end their time in Toronto and they walked away in May 2020. Sidewalk Toronto was officially dead. There would be no smart city on that patch of Toronto waterfront. Instead, today, there's just what Noor and I found there. A budget car and truck rental, empty parking lots, a Porsche dealership, and frankly, an eerie sense of incompleteness. So what should we take away from all of this? Sidewalk Labs never built anything in Toronto in large part because of two things. One is a mismatch between their attitude with sort of move fast and break things, Silicon Valley kind of gumption versus the sort of slow caution of Canadian governments. But they also weren't prepared to meet Canada and Ontario and Toronto where Canada and Ontario and Toronto were willing to have the meeting in the first place. I think a lot of people will look to what happened in Toronto as a cautionary tale. If you're a government that's in talks with a company, you're probably thinking, what does the company really want out of this? And if you're a company in talks with a government, you're probably thinking, what are the limits of what I can do with this partnership versus what I'm actually hoping to achieve? Even after all of the Sidewalk Toronto debates and so much controversy over how tech companies use our data, Canada's privacy laws are still woefully out of date. The federal liberal government has been talking about this since I started covering technology in early 2018. And I remember interviewing former Minister Nafti Paines over and over. Every time I caught him in a corner at a conference, I would be like, hey, what's up, man? When are you guys introducing privacy policy you've been talking about? And he's like, it's in the works. And to this day, a second version of it is currently sitting before Parliament. As of the time of recording, it has not made any meaningful movements within Parliament to become law. And Josh believes that even though Sidewalk Toronto might be dead, this story is far from over. Governments need to be proactive in thinking about how they want to interact with technology companies and set procurement rules to figure out exactly how they want those relationships to look like. And they also need to really think about the future of data and privacy and how they're going to regulate it. This is going to happen again because this is just such a big market opportunity for companies. People are going to be having these conversations for many decades to come. This episode relied on work done by Josh O'Kane, Tom Cardozo, Alex Bazikovic, Jeff Gray, Bianca Wiley, and many, many others. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at CommonsPod. You can also email me, arshi at canterline.com. This episode was produced by me, Noor Azria, and Jordan Cornish. Our managing editor is Annette Ejiofor. 
And our music is by Nathan Burley. You can listen to Commons ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. If you value this podcast, please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. And as a supporter, you'll get premium access to all our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. And you'll get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on Canada Land merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events. And more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis, and you'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now. Click the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.